Tennessee just sounds perfect. Whether that's live music, the crack of a campfire, or kids laughing on an adventure. To start planning your trip, visit tnvacation.com. Tennessee sounds perfect. Tired of not being able to get a hold of anyone when you have questions about your credit card? With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yes, you heard that right. You can talk to a human on the Discover customer service team anytime. So the next time you have a question about your credit card, call 1-800-DISCOVER to get the service you deserve. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. What's up? This your boy Lil Duval. And check out my podcast, Conversations with Unc, on the Black Effect Podcast Network. Each and every Tuesday, Conversations with Unc podcast feature casuals and in-depth talk about ebbs and flows of life and the pursuit of happiness. Unlike my work on stage, I tap into a more serious and sensitive side to give life advice and simply offer words of encouragement, yet remind folks to never forget to laugh. Every Tuesday, listen to Conversations with Unc, hosted by Lil Duval on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Presented by AT&T. Connecting changes everything. Ridiculous History is a production of iHeartRadio. Welcome back to the show, Ridiculous Historians. Thank you, as always, so much for tuning in. Let's hear it for our super producer and our own legal beagle, Mr. Max Williams. He's so litigious. He's always just suing willy and or nilly, left and or right. No, that's just you, Noel. Did you? uh, You're Noel. I'm Ben. It's true. And that's uh, and, and you guys are going to behave yourselves because we're all friends here. I never (laughs) sued no one. Not never, not know how. I don't even know where to start. I read recently, um, just over this past week, a story about a guy who was a judge who sued a family dry cleaner for $54 million because, according to him, they lost a pair of his pants. And this guy was so litigious that he actually lost his job. My favorite line, I almost texted it to you guys, was they had to pause. This is a quote from the article. They had to pause court proceedings because – the guy apparently got so emotional when he was questioning him himself about losing his pants that he I'm broke sorry, down man. in tears. Were were the pants on him at the time that no. they were dry cleaned? No. Were no. they magical pants? I'm confused. Were yeah. these lucky pantaloons? What well, fifty million? That's that's absurd. 54. Surely he did not win. No. I mean, were they white? Unclear. They, I think they were just regular khakis. But the thing is, um, that guy was, he did lose his job as a judge, which he okay, should good. have, because yeah. he weaponized all his legal knowledge to just torture this family so much that it's just like a, a mom, dad, and a kid. Uh, and he tortured them so much with appeals and, and yada, 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 that they almost moved back to South Korea. So we know... We know that you can be a bad faith actor in the in the world of courts, and we're going to talk today about something. This this might end up being a two parter. Something that um, I think has fascinated all of us, and it's something we started running into a lot in the world of podcasting. I don't run into this in my day to day life. 
You know, honestly, it was it was in through podcasting and colleagues of ours and, you know, various deals and things like that, that I started hearing the term IP thrown around. And for the longest time, I didn't really know what it meant and never really bothered to ask. But um, it, it's a real umbrella term, you know, and it refers to a whole lot of stuff innovation, software, engineering, entertainment. It's a real catch-all term that basically refers to the way you can protect and or commodify and or sue on behalf of an idea and the way people, you know, treat ideas. Yeah, that's a good way to put it. It is such an umbrella term. Intellectual property. I had the idea this idea is mine. But this applies to so many other things. The manufacturing process for pharmaceutical substances, uh, the algorithms used to assess your credit score, even, even words like Google or the brand uh, or brand logos, like the Golden Arches of McDonald's. I'll never forget my first brush, my first serious brush with IP getting into legal trouble for it. I got a pretty strident letter uh, when I was working on uh, that uh, animated show for kids called Stuff of Genius about inventors. And, and you guys have heard this story. The people who own Frisbee, the trademark Frisbee, they are hardcore about it. If it's not a Frisbee brand Frisbee, it can only be called a flying disc. A I'm out here trying disc. to like tell eight-year-olds about how Frisbees came to be. And I got a cease and desist or a C and D in the business. Oh, wow. Yeah. And it will, you know, we'll, we'll probably get into this a little bit, but it's also sometimes a brand or a trademarked, uh, you know, concept can become so ubiquitous that it becomes mm -hmm. a catch-all term in and of itself. Like Xerox has sure. become, you know, sort of like, I mean, it's not even something people do that much anymore because who, who holds paper but you know there was a time where you'd say xerox me this you know document or whatever and that would just refer to making a, a photographic copy um a photocopy I guess is the term. but yeah. xerox is obviously the, the biggest brand you know in that world or you know in certain parts of the country a, a, a soda pop is a coke um we live in that part of the country um or yeah frisbee exactly or band-aid you know kleenex these are proprietary eponyms and that's once, the term yeah Thank once you. Once that stuff comes out, the problem is no matter how many people you take to court, you can't stop billions of people from just collectively deciding to say we Google something when we Internet search. You know, I encountered something that is pretty hilarious, and I don't, I don't know if this is a actually protectable IP or if this was actually registered uh, as a trademark. But are you guys familiar with the movie Birdemic Shock and Terror? I am not. It is a really, really, really low budget, hilarious. It's like like in the in the zone of the room, the Tommy Wiseau uh, filmic atrocity that has become kind of a cult sensation. It's in that kind of vein of just you know so bad it's kind of amazing in and of itself that it even exists. It's got like it's you know it's a love story it seems like, but then it also these like killer birds enter the scene, and if you watch the trailer, the birds are just clearly like badly. Photoshop kind of uh, after effects on and they're like hovering while their wings are flapping and they're just kind of hovering in place. But in the trailer language, they refer to it as, or the directors refer to it as the master of, quote, the romantic thriller, which is followed by a trademark symbol. 
I don't know <laughs> if that's uh, if that's sufficiently creative enough to warrant a trademark. We're going to get into what some of the criteria are for. Uh, getting a trademark or, you know, yeah. ideas have to have a certain amount of originality. They have to have a certain amount of novelness, et cetera. Uh, and then there are other laws that can protect these, you know, rights of the, the intellectual property uh, stakeholders. But then there are also laws that keep it from getting a little too, you know, protected. Right. And those laws are going to surprise you along the way. At some point, I'm going to figure out the etymology of legal beagle. But, yeah, but, <laughs> but for now, yeah, let's be aspirational. But for now, I think, no, maybe one of the things our fellow ridiculous historians need to know from the jump is that the concept of intellectual property or IP is super duper old, way older than you might assume, all the way back to uh, 500 BCE in a Greek colony named Sybaris or Sybaris. Uh, there were these chefs who got who were granted legal monopolies for a year at a time over the creation of certain dishes. So they would say, look, you're the only guy who can make the the fig farfignugan here, which was, you know, as we all know, mm -hmm. huge in Severus at the time. It's not a cookie. It's fruited cake. Everyone knows that. Uh, there's a really cool book that collects a lot of this history, and it's called The Genesis of American Patent and Copyright Law by Bruce Bugby, which is a great name. He highlights a couple of interesting cases, one involving Vitruvius, who is said to have essentially codified the idea of intellectual property theft during a literary contest that he oversaw in Alexandria, where he was one of the judges. Uh, Vitruvius essentially uh, called out, you know, put on blast some other poets that he referred to as being false um, because he believed they uh, had stolen the words and turns of phrase of other writers, of other poets. Which would be super easy at the time because, you know, the only way to transmit things would be word of mouth or writing it down and physically transporting it. So these people could be stealing stuff and the audience would never know unless someone brought it to their attention. The other times, uh, because in this, in this book uh, that you mentioned, Bugby talks about three different cases of IP law in antiquity. The second and third are also from Roman times. And even though there's not a specific Roman law we can point to about IP, we do know that Roman legal experts discussed this in depth, you know, like, okay, if there is a painting on a table, who owns the painting versus who owns the table where, where the painting is on? Uh, there's also the idea, like you said, literary piracy or plagiarism, uh, and people have been caught out reciting the works of other folks then there are examples that might be a little more unusual there there because there was this huge network of power structures monarchies in ancient times granting privileges like the uh, royal patent we make the king's shoes you know and then franchises different favors bugby has a cool distinguishment between these he says look the difference between systems of intellectual property versus franchises or royal favors is that the franchises, the royal cosigns, restrict access to intellectual works, ideas that are already in the public sphere. And so they take something away from people. 
An inventor, on the other hand, is just adding something new to the world. They're not taking away anything that was already there. And that's why you get to, like, authors would copy each other all the freaking time. You know what I mean? And AI is kind of just a an iteration of that. AI is the crack cocaine to the powder cocaine of early plagiarism. Yeah, indeed. And it's interesting because, I mean, it, one person's influence is another person's theft, you know? And we know that artists have borrowed from other artists throughout history. Writers have bought, borrowed ideas and sometimes, you know, whole concepts or even specific turns of phrase from other writers. And it is a little bit of a gray area. And some of these intellectual property laws are designed to kind of make that a little clearer, make those sure. distinctions a little clearer, but it doesn't always work, you know, no. because it, it is, we do live in a world of uh, intersecting influences. So it, it's really kind of hard to sometimes say, you know, and we see it a lot too in like lawsuits surrounding maybe music. You know, uh, I believe it was Ed Sheeran just won a couple of lawsuits uh, where he was sued for supposedly, you know, lifting a melody from like a famous R&B song. Um, once we talked start, about that. Yeah, Dan Fogarty got, wasn't Fogarty and Creedence Clearwater, he got sued for uh, music that he had made because it, it sounded too much sounded like himself. Too much like himself. Tired of not being able to get a hold of anyone when you have questions about your credit card? With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yes, you heard that right. You can talk to a human on the Discover customer service team anytime. So the next time you have a question about your credit card, call 1-800-DISCOVER to get the service you deserve. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Snag a job is where America goes to hire with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers, snag a job is the all-in-one solution for hiring high-quality employees who can cover all your needs. On demand, tempt to hire part-time or full-time. You name the position. Warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, podcast producer. Yeah, snag a job's got a worker for that. With our easy-to-use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snagajob is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. So visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire. This episode of Ridiculous History is brought to you by Mint Mobile. You know, Ben, I got to say, one of the best parts about spring cleaning is that post-clean clarity you get where you're like, man, how have I been living like this? What's wrong with me? <laughs> you're right, Noel. It's, it's kind of like when you find out you've been paying a fortune for wireless when Mint Mobile has phone plans for 15 bucks a month when you purchase a three-month plan. It's time to switch to Mint Mobile and get unlimited talk, text, and data for 15 bucks a month. To get this new customer offer and your new three-month unlimited wireless plan for just 15 bucks a month, go to mintmobile.com slash ridiculous. That's mintmobile.com slash ridiculous. Cut your wireless bill to 15 bucks a month at mintmobile.com slash ridiculous. $45 upfront payment required, equivalent to $15 a month. New customers on first three-month plan only. 
Speed slower above 40 gigabytes on unlimited plan. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for details. Point being, you know, once this, when stuff like this, when creativity starts to get too litigious, it really cracks down on creativity and it makes people scared to like, you know, try things. And so it's, it's a fine line, you know, where you don't want people to be open to outright theft and someone could like profit or benefit from literally stealing someone else's idea. But also there's only so many notes in the scale. There's only sure. so many, you know, story Letters archetypes, 100%. So it is, you know, it's kind of a delicate dance, but I think this is a very interesting place to start with these examples from antiquity. Another example comes from uh, the birth of the Florentine Republic, um, where, you know, rulers were basically passing out franchises and a lot of, like you said, Ben, there were these arbiters of kind of royal favors and privileges. And Ben, this really reminds me a, a little bit, at least, of our snake oil episode and, and the idea of these royals essentially having carte blanche to say, no, this is fine and this person's able to do it and they have, you know, exclusive rights to, to make this medicine that we have deemed to be efficacious through our God-given ability to, you know, do science, which yeah. isn't the case at all. It turns out that uh, just like we talked about in our previous Vatican City episode, that anytime you are in a society where just one person can decide whether something is good or bad, you run into ridiculous situations. Uh, Like, okay, let's go back to this idea of patent, very much related to intellectual property. A patent sort of locks down the concept that this is your idea and whatever happens with it later through the work of others, you should get a piece of that if it's based on your concepts. And this takes us to the Republic of Florence. It's June 19th, 1421. There's a guy named Filippo Brunelleschi. Uh, He's a famous architect. And he gets this, uh, one of the first statutes that protects the rights of a creator. And the Republic of Florence says, okay, you write something, you invent something, we respect that it's your idea, and we're going to give you incentives for this. Uh, And those incentives might vary case to case, but what they were also saying, one of the incentives was if you sign up, if you apply and you get a patent, we're going to crack down on people who are trying to take your stuff. Uh, and that's very appealing to people at this time. And this becomes a huge piece of patent law as it exists today. The idea that you will be compensated legally if someone infringes upon your idea. And then the other concept was a term limit on these inventors' rights. So that's why you hear about things going out of copyright in the world of literature. And for quite some time, The mouse, we all know who I'm talking about. The mouse had some of the best copyright and IP lawyers on the planet stretching laws every time Mickey Mouse almost got into public domain. Well, and I think they finally run up against the ceiling of all of those efforts. They did, yeah. I think that's right. And I'd heard that they were considering pivoting um, from Mickey being their primary, you know, uh, mascot to this little dragon called Figment, yes. um, which is pretty prominent at, at Disney World now, the Figment. And I think he's been around for a while, but there is like a statue of Walt Disney like holding Figment. And he's certainly been in the canon for a bit. And there is a Figment ride with, uh, I think, John Cleese or no Eric Idle I think from Monty Python is, is one of the narrators or figures in that ride but I, it doesn't seem like they fully 
pivoted to that. But I did read that a, a ways back, and I'm interested to see how that goes. But yeah, I mean, like through their, you know, just absolute uh, army of lawyers, of intellectual property lawyers. I mean, you got to think about it. Disney, you know, I, I was telling you guys uh, off air that I, uh, me and, and the fam watched um, – the 1951 Alice in Wonderland last night. And it holds up, man. It looks absolutely modern. It's so cool, so innovative. And of course, they're going to protect that stuff. And like Disney was just basically one of the first to market with this kind of concept of like scaled, high-level, glossy animation. And they innovated with things like the multi-plane camera. So of course, they're going to be protected for that. But up to a point... You know, there, there does come a point at which it's like it is kind of counterproductive to the public interest, right? Yeah, absolutely. And, and sometimes the public can get lost in these conversations. Let's go to the English system. So over in England, they see what is happening in Italy and they like a lot of the Italian ideas. So the English system creates something called the Statute of Monopolies in 1624 and the confusingly named Statute of Anne in 1710. Right. Uh, right. The Statute of Monopolies says if you invent something, if you write something, you get the monopoly over that for 14 years, which was a long time because, you know, people died people pretty frequently. Yeah. yeah, exactly. So this means we're not going to grant any exclusive rights to non-original ideas or to works that are already in the public domain. So you can't be the person who goes into court and says, I want a patent on the book of Job. Or tacos. That's my thing. Mm -hmm. If you introduced them to tacos, you would have blown their minds that's that's that's, that's a yeah. good point uh, bad example but the point is you you can't just say something that's already been out there that's been styled on many times by different parties you can't just say dibs you know like because i just i'm because i said it first hmm. that's not how that works you have to demonstrate whether through drawings or you know uh some sort of documentation that you in fact are the innovator of a certain idea and i think um you made a good point earlier ben that this was like an incentive for creators uh this probably this type of law is what spurred a lot of innovation mm -hmm. if if it were if there weren't protections then it would not really benefit uh creators to come out with this idea because people more powerful than them could just snatch it right out from of them not not to say that didn't still happen certainly did mm -hmm. yeah and this is this is an excellent point you're making we also let's look at the statute of Anne because a lot of scholars in the field consider this to be the first modern copyright statute and it's uh you can see where they're coming from with it uh, it goes in part like this Whereas printers, booksellers, and other persons have been lately frequently taken the liberty of printing, reprinting, and publishing books without the consent of all the authors and proprietors, to their very great detriment, and too often to the ruin of them and their families, for preventing, therefore, such practices for the future, and for the encouragement of learned men to compose and write used books, be it enacted. What they're basically saying is everything we just said. Uh, that's the best way to put it. Like you, like you mentioned, there's this incentive. Uh, and I also want to shout out the Stanford Encyclopedia of Philosophy, which pulls, pulls a lot of this work together. Um, and it doesn't take too long for them to go to court, right? There's that English, ca this case comes up in English court, Miller versus Taylor. And eventually for a while, they say, look, 
as a result of this case in 1769, if you were an author, you get to control what you get to control the results of your work, right? You get to control how what you made is used. And then that goes into a more philosophical argument. To whom does a work of art belong? Does it belong to the creator? Does it belong to the audience? Does it belong to the guy who buys it? I went to the samurai exhibit in the high oh, that recently. So cool. Dude, yeah. it is cool, but they have so much stuff. And there's a thing that freaked me out a little learning about the proprietors. It's a third generation art collector. So it's like this guy is the son and grandson of full-time art collectors. And this is but a small piece. Their full museum is in Dallas. I suspect oil money. But uh, like, does does that stuff belong to them then? Or does it belong to, you know, they bought it. It's well, interesting. Be- belong is also sort of a, a, a bit of a, you know, black box or a gray right. area kind of yeah. term. Like it belongs to the reader in, in terms of the way they interpret it with their imagination, but it doesn't belong to them and they can just like republish it under their own name and then expect to collect residuals, you know? Right. So, I mean, it, it is a philosophical conversation, but it's also like, it again goes into how do you use your influences as a creator? Like, are you truly you know, creating something new based on or influenced by something old, or is it so derivative that it is, you know, essentially uh, plagiarizing? And, and and also, there's like a whole, you know, industry based on creating derivative work, and sure. not 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 in the legal sense. Derivative works is an IP term in and of itself, or like making a book, you know, out of a TV show, or vice versa. Or, you know, adaptations like the the catch-all there is derivative work, but you know, there's the whole concept of mockbusters, you know. Where it's like uh, instead of transformers, it's transmorphers, and they're basically banking on the fact that some people might not know the difference and rent the bad one, you know, or, or the cheap one. It's I believe it's called the Asylum. Is a, is a company that makes these kind of you know instead of snakes on a plane, sure. snakes on a train. Um, but they probably are they've got legal representation who are telling them just how far they can push that line. Like the Revengers instead of the Avengers. These people ran the back aisles of Blockbuster for many years. Correct. Uh, the What we know about intellectual property or the way it works out today, even though it, it does sound kind of ridiculous and you can't get in ridiculous situations with it, a lot of it comes from the United States, which makes sense because one of the biggest U.S. exports is, of course, culture, right? Movies, film, TV, ideas. Uh, and... The IP system in the U.S. comes from that statute of monopolies I mentioned earlier, 1623, and it it still says the same thing. You get exclusive right to your work for a limited time. Uh, This comes into something called the Massachusetts Body of Liberties, thanks to a guy named Nathaniel Ward of Ipswich in 1641. And he said, uh, look, we're not going to allow anybody to have monopolies, but if you make a new invention and it's overall something that we all think is a good idea, then you can have some exclusivity for a short time. The first guy who does this is a guy named Joseph Jinks Sr., which sounds weirdly Appalachian to me. He is given a 14-year patent for the invention of not the first watermill engine, but a faster one. And they're like, hey, good job, Joey. You know, 14 years, bro. You just run with this. Let those ponies run. And uh, then the first American copyright 
goes to a Massachusetts printer named John Usher just a few decades later, 1672. Interesting from Massachusetts. I just, uh, I spent a little bit of time over the weekend watching a Criterion Channel collection of uh, Roger Corman films, uh, adaptations of Edgar Allan Poe stories, um, which is also interesting in terms of intellectual property because those stories, you know, by the 1960s, I believe, were in the public domain. So I don't think you had to pay any licensing fees to do adaptations of them. And Roger Corman was not, not, I mean, not notorious is the wrong word, but just was very much known for being a very frugal filmmaker. And if you watch some of these, I think they're fabulous. They all star Vincent Price. Some of them reuse shots from previous ones. And the first two are uh, The Fall of the House of Usher, which is with this guy's name, John Usher, the printer that you're talking about. A lot of these stories are based in and around um, the Boston area, Massachusetts. So Usher is this family that's supposedly cursed, you know. But my point is, the first two movies, The Pit and the Pendulum and The House Fall of the House of Usher, are both set in like the same kind of decrepit mansion sure. um, with the same kind of misty exterior shots that are clearly like matte paintings and stuff. And both of them sort of borrow shots from one another. But I actually found them completely delightful. A little sidebar, but I just I couldn't uh, I couldn't pass up a chance to talk about the name Usher and the fact that there's this whole old English kind of lineage there in Massachusetts around this time. Mm-hmm. And it makes sense that Massachusetts would be sort of the origin point for a lot of this legal thought because it's an early colony, because there was so much money and so much innovation in the area at the time. And they weren't alone in this race. They weren't the only people who were trying to figure out how to get their heads around protecting ideas. A lot of colonial governments gave patents and copyrights throughout the 1700s. Typically, though, these were made as special one-off acts of legislation, and they got passed on request. Kind of like you get guacamole on request. I call it the guacamole rule. So if you invented something, you would have to go to your local government and say, hey, lock this down, make this exclusive. Rhode Island, what are we? Anyway, uh, these grants typically all had the same strong commonalities. You can see uh, all you can see all sorts of early examples of this, like uh, Peter Garrard in South Carolina in 1691 uh, gets a two-year patent for a rice husking machine he invents. Uh, Rhode Island gives somebody a 10-year patent for the manufacture of soap. And this continues through all kinds of stuff. The Revolutionary War happens, fast forward, fast forward, and people still want to protect ideas. Massachusetts is one of the first to do this when the U.S. is newly formed. They make their state constitution, and Massachusetts puts protection of ideas in their constitution, which is pretty cool. Um, Other states didn't do that. Well, yeah, it, it makes sense because, like you said, a lot of these early cases were centered right there, and that really was kind of the seat of innovation, you know, in the country at the time. So it makes sense that they would have kind of led the charge. And Massachusetts and the Boston area obviously still continues to be a very important site of um, academia, you know, sure. and, and medical innovation. Sure. Yeah, absolutely. 
Tired of not being able to get a hold of anyone when you have questions about your credit card? With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yes, you heard that right. You can talk to a human on the Discover customer service team anytime. So the next time you have a question about your credit card, call 1-800-DISCOVER to get the service you deserve. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Snag a job is where America goes to hire with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers, snag a job is the all-in-one solution for hiring high-quality employees who can cover all your needs. On demand, tempt to hire part-time or full-time. You name the position. Warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, podcast producer. Yeah, Snagajob's got a worker for that. With our easy-to-use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snagajob is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. So visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire. Me. Focus Features presents Back to Black. I want people to hear my voice and just forget their troubles. Experience the music and her story. Know this. I ain't no spy girl. Like never before. That's my daughter. That's my Amy. On the big screen. I want to be remembered. For just being me. Amy Winehouse. Back to Black. Directed by Sam Taylor Johnson. Rated R. Under 17. Not a minute without parent. Only in theaters May 17th. So, even though it was ad hoc, in a lot of other states outside of Massachusetts, they still have the same commonalities. You get exclusivity, but you don't get it forever. And then, as people in the newly formed American states started traveling to more and more states, as it became more of a um, more of an actual country, the need to make the uniform IP legislation became mission critical. So a lot of people, including authors like Noah Webster, started lobbying the federal and state governments to say, hey, copyright legislation, you guys, if something is, if I wrote a book in Georgia, then I should still be the guy who wrote the book in New York. Of course, because, I mean, obviously we're well past the innovation of widespread, you know, typeset printing and all, you know, so, I mean, things are distributed far and wide and sometimes, you know, thing, these, these sometimes they're smaller printing operations. Like, so like what we might think of today as, you know, more bespoke kind of presses or let's say certain maybe um, record kind of uh, companies that, that are smaller that maybe make like high quality bootlegs or something like that. You know, you certainly would have seen that. And if there's no protection, then easily someone could just reprint your work and sell it and make, make money from it, you know? And if there's no protection, then you would have no recourse as the creator. Yeah. And that's, that's dangerous because, you know, this is a full-time job for these people. So if they can't make a living off of it, then they can't do it. That's one of the that's one of the things that I think spurs the conversation along here. You want to have a society where people can 
create culture. And if you don't have that, if it's not possible for them to do that, then eventually a society that can create culture is going to is going to infiltrate and kind of subsume what you think makes your society its own thing. That's right. And I mean, you know, we so easy to romanticize the advent of the United States and all of that and the Constitution, what it stood for. But I mean, there were a lot of things that that were very unique to it that it did stand for. And these types of protections that, you know, sort of created the concept of the American dream were kind of, you know, um, I guess, built into the language of the Constitution, which is what made the United States sort of a, a an interesting kind of like land of opportunity. Right. Yeah. Man. Even, even if it didn't always prove out to be that way in practice. Pursuit of happiness. Correct. Right, yeah. Uh, I'm referring to that beautiful line in the Constitution, which basically says, you know, go for it. Do your best. <laughs> yeah, yeah just, just give it the old college try. So in 1783, Congress passes a pretty important resolution about this that codifies the idea of copyright statutes protecting an author's work for not less than 14 years. Within two years of this, by 1785, 12 of the 13 states have passed similar legislation. South Carolina is a little bit of an outlier because they equated copyright and patent protections. They said, eh, it's an idea. It's kind of the same thing. Anyway, you can and, and, and just just to back up, I mean, I, I, it wasn't exactly, you know, it's not like one of the part of the Bill of Rights exactly, but it was, you know, uh, the language in the Constitution was suggesting of this sort of protection left it up to the states. But it seemed like it was already at this point uh, pretty important to most of them. Yeah, agreed. And here's the problem with this stuff, folks. And this is where things often get ridiculous. As anyone can assure you, you can write all sorts of laws. You can put whatever you want on paper. That is not the same thing as those laws being followed and putting something on paper doesn't make it automatically true. American intellectual property protection was still a really tall milkshake, a crazy bag of badgers for many years after uh, state laws made it really expensive and tough for people to make use of these of these protections, right? You would already have to kind of be in the system. You'd have to be kind of well-to-do. What I'm saying is if you were a sharecropper and you wrote an amazing uh, book of poems or um, meditations on agriculture, then you would have a really tough time getting the protection that you were guaranteed on paper. And the Constitutional Convention, to your point, didn't talk about IP stuff until August. They had other things to do. And as soon as it came through, everyone agreed. They were like, yeah, let's just, yeah, that's fine. That's totally fine. You know, uh, over, there were 55 people at the Constitutional Convention. Over half had legal training of some sort. Uh, most of them were super deep involved, super deeply involved in their state government. So they all had or at least over half of them had some kind of rough understanding of IP law. So this wasn't a hot button issue for them. It was something they could all agree on, which is relatively unusual at any point in American governance. That's right. And it's, 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 it is a little con confusing. And, and I think that's evidenced by my waffling on this. I mean, there was, there was a clause, an IP clause in the Constitution that was written in after a lot of this kind of state-by-state -state embracing of, of uh, IP law. Um, but even though that, that it was written into the Constitution, 
it, it's still, it was, it was sort of imperfectly written, I guess. Mm -hmm. So, um, this whole state-based system of intellectual property protection kind of was a little bit, you know, rough, right? Yeah. I mean, okay. And I, I say this with great affection for the constitution. It was a difficult document to write. They knew it was not going to be perfect. And a lot of times, if you read it, there's this vibe of, you know, make this happen somehow. So Do the, your best. Yeah, we trust it, you. Sure. Pursue Honor that system. happiness, bro. <laughs> so, like, the U.S. Constitution does have that IP stuff in there. It's Article 1, Section 8, Clause 8. And all they say is, or the gist of it is, quote, to promote the progressive science and useful arts by securing for limited times to authors and inventors the exclusive right to their respective writings and discoveries. So just somehow make that happen. That's all the cost. It doesn't say how to do that. It's just like, all right, also that. And, you know, these guys already had a long day at the convention. They're probably been arguing back and forth. Someone says, all right, what about this part? We all know this one. And everybody goes, uh, yeah, when's lunch? You know what I mean? Just, yeah, just knock it out. So once again, hopping across the pond back to Europe, um, we had countries such as Holland and Switzerland and Belgium um, and Italy that were uh, modeling their IP laws um, around what England had accomplished. It's interesting considering that I believe England initially modeled their intellectual property laws off of, what was that, Ben? We talked about that at the very beginning. Was it off uh, of like Florence? Off of Florence, off of Italy. Exactly. So it's the circle of life there once again. So you're starting to see, uh, you know, we, we've, we have weirdly also seen, Ben, if I'm not mistaken, it sort of varies, you know, country by country. But in Europe, there are some laws that are more protective of intellectual property mm -hmm. for creatives and for, um, you know, rights holders than we have here in the United States, right? Sure. And then there are other countries where that that dog doesn't hunt, as they say, you know, right. that that leads to some very interesting situations in the in mainland China, for instance, there are tons of Harry Potter books that J.K. Rowling didn't write. There are thousands upon thousands of unofficial sequels because it's very much a reading country uh, to all of your favorite books in the West. Uh, it's It still doesn't, there's not an IP law that is enforced uniformly across the globe. And is that a problem? Is that something that does need to be fixed? What does the future bring? Well, we did start to see, you know, some kind of intellectual property uh, agreements that were more globally sort of focused, like the Berne Convention Treaty uh, and also something called the Trade-Related Aspects of Intellectual Property Agreement, or TRIPS, which was 19, which took place in, as recently as 1994. Um, so there is sort of a, an eye towards, you know, global enforcement of intellectual property taking place, but that all just depends. It's sort of like, it's toothless. It's sort of like a lot of uh, UN resolutions. Like, it's, you're not going to go to war over it. Um, it's sort of more like a play nice. Here's what we've sort of agreed are the rules. But if you're not a participating country, then like you said, with China or whatever, then it's not really, you know, relevant. Yeah, a lot of it is sort of Western or European rules. And it's kind of, it's weirdly similar to the climate change debate. 
you know, a lot of developing nations say, well, you wrecked the planet. Why do, why are you pulling the ladder up after you and telling us that we can't do the same thing to succeed? Well, and also, that's, like, yeah. you polluted more, so shouldn't you have to, you right. know, do more? In terms of, like, carbon credits and right. things like that, right? Yeah, and, and, you know, folks, we don't have to personally agree with that perspective, but we do need to acknowledge it exists. And with that, we are calling it a day. This is the end of part one of our History of Intellectual Property episode. Now, we gave you a lot of background. We gave you a lot of context. Tune in for part two, because this is when we get to uh, some even more ridiculous stuff, including some examples of what happens when IP beefs get cartoonish. So thanks as always to our pal, our super producer, Mr. Max Williams. Thanks to our research associate, Dr. Z. Indeed. Huge thanks to Christopher Hasiotis here in spirit. Alex Williams, who composed our theme, Jonathan Strickland, our very own personal patent troll, um, or just, you know, a troll. Uh, he's sort of more of a bridge troll type figure than, than a patent one, which we should talk about uh, the concept of patent trolls a little bit. We certainly mentioned it in the past. But um, look for a little bit more of that kind of talk in episode two. I'm taking out a patent on the letter E. <laughs> we'll see you next time, folks. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. This episode of Ridiculous History is brought to you by Avalon Waterways. Ben, are you in major need of a vacation right now? Noel, you're a mind reader. I am, and uh, aren't we all? We are. While cruising remains popular, there's something big happening in the industry, and that is, my friend, smaller ships. True story. The intimate ships of Avalon waterways can go where the big ships can only dream through winding passageways of rolling vineyards and castled hills into the heart of timeless cities and storybook villages. That sounds like a delight. See how Avalon's smaller ships promise greater discoveries, fewer people, and more of everything. Limited time. Special offers await at avalonwaterways.com. Rev up your thrills this summer at Cedar Point on the all-new Top Thrill 2. Drive the sky on the world's tallest and fastest triple-launch vertical speedway. And now, for a limited time, get more Cedar Point fun for less with our limited-time bundle for just $49.99. Get admission, parking, and all-day drinks for one low price. But you better hurry, because this bundle won't last long. Save now at cedarpoint.com. If a new house is on your wish list in the next five years, grow your savings faster and experience your dreams with an Ohio Homebuyer Plus account from Kemba Financial Credit Union. A savings account specifically designed to save for a new home where you can earn 7% APY, a $500 matching bonus, and a $1,500 mortgage closing cost credit. Learn more at Kemba.org. Offer expires March 31st, 2025. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. NMLS 292230. Equal housing lender. Federally insured by NCUA.